Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good to see you all tonight. After we were so rudely interrupted by weather and a case of the flu, we're finally back to our Wednesday night studies in the book of Psalms. And we're really only going to be able to do this for a couple more weeks. And then the Gladeville conference is coming up. So we will miss that week. And if you feel like going to church that week on a Wednesday night, come up to Gladeville. Tonight we are going to begin in Psalm 49. I realize that I have skipped over Psalm 48. We will come back and pick it up later. It is really an ode to Jerusalem. But Psalm 49 and Psalm 50 are what we're going to look at tonight in these shorter psalms. I have been trying to pick off two in an evening in the hopes that we will get through the book of Psalms sometime in my lifetime. (laughs) And so tonight, Psalm 49. Psalm 49 and Psalm 50. Psalm 49 is a riddle. The writer tells us it's a riddle. It's probably David who is writing it because he says that he's going to present his proverb, as he calls it, his dark saying. He's going to present it on his harp. So that's his musical accompaniment for it. And the theme of Psalm 49 is a fairly instructive theme. It is, why are you so afraid of people? Even people who have power, even people who have money, no matter how much money, fame, or power anybody amasses in this lifetime, in the end, they die the same way that every brute beast and cattle die. In other words, no matter how much pomp somebody might be able to exhibit in this lifetime, at the end of their life, they're worm food the same way that every dead animal by the side of the road is. So why are you afraid of them? And then Psalm 50 is God's judgment against rote religion without a proper attitude of thanksgiving. And as we're reading through Psalm 50, we'll take the time to talk about one of the most commonly cited verses out of the Psalms that we're going to find here in Psalm 50, a commonly cited verse by all of our amillennial and postmillennial friends, so we'll even get a little bit of eschatology in tonight. Psalm 49, let's start reading. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of or for the sons of Korah, hear this. All peoples, that's pretty much everybody, give ear all inhabitants of the whole wide world, both the low and the high, both the rich and the poor together. Obviously, David wants everybody to pay attention and think about this. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. 
I will express my riddle on the harp. As I mentioned, that word that is translated riddle really means a dark saying. It doesn't mean a riddle the way we think of riddles, what is black and white and red all over or something like that. It means something for you to really think about. And here is his basic premise, verse 5. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? In other words, when I'm having a hard time, and we certainly know that King David had lots of difficult days, and now he's thinking back on those hard days, on the difficulties of his life, and reflecting on it and saying, but why was I so afraid? Why should I fear during those days of adversity when the sinfulness, the iniquity of my enemies surrounded me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So these are powerful men. These are rich men. These are men of influence. And when they all get together with all their political ability, with all of their monetary ability, with all of their collective power, and rise up against him, David reacted the same way that we would. We happen to be living in a time right now where our government encroaches on our private life all the time. And wealthy men, the Bill Gates of this world, make decisions that affect us on a regular basis. And David says it's so easy to be intimidated by that. It's so easy to think that they actually have some kind of power or authority. He is now going to try to demonstrate to you that they don't really have the authority they think they have, so why are you ultimately afraid of them? Sounds very much like Jesus who said, don't fear men who can only kill your body. Rather, fear God, who can put both body and soul in hell. That's where your attention should really be. Why should I fear in the days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother. I will tell you now that in a couple of verses, it'll be obvious that what he's talking about is sustaining a person's terrestrial life, keeping them from the grave. And so what David is arguing is no amount of money that they might have is ultimately any benefit for them when it comes time to die. And nobody has enough money or enough power or enough ability to redeem somebody else's life. You can't pay a sufficient price to keep somebody who's dying from going to the grave. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a sufficient ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul, of his life, is costly. And he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, and that he should not undergo decay. So in other words, David's entire argument is everybody dies. When it comes time to die, there's nothing you can do about it, and there's nothing your rich and powerful friends can do about it. Death comes for absolutely everybody, and there's no amount of wealth, individually or collectively, that you can pay to God as a ransom to get God to change his mind and let that person continue living on eternally. 
at some point, everybody's going to die. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, and that he should not undergo decay. Now, of course, the language of those two verses also makes us think of the redemptive work that Christ did. After a declaration like this, that there is no man, no other sinful man who can do anything to redeem you, nobody can pay a sufficient ransom price to God to satisfy God and keep your life going eternally, quite astoundingly, that's exactly what Jesus did. So the impossibility is stated here that no man can by any means redeem his brother And yet Jesus wasn't ashamed to call us brethren, and he actually did redeem us. But you'll notice that he didn't redeem us with the money or the sacrifices or the blood of these terrestrial lives. It wasn't by what the world considers precious, what the world considers wealth. That's not what he paid. Instead, he paid the price of his own blood as a sacrifice sufficient to God. But when it comes to sustaining a person's life, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him that he should live on eternally and that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die and the stupid and the senseless alike perish. Death is universal. Death so far has a perfect one-for-one ratio going. Everybody gets one. And you can't change that fact. So he sees that wise men, rich men, powerful men, they die. And the stupid people and the people with no sense, they alike die. But when the wealthy men and when the wise men die, they leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is... David is now reflecting on their thinking and pointing out that it's incorrect thinking. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. That use of house there is dynasty, just like the house of David. We still use that language to this day when we talk about the great dynasties of England, the house of Tudor or the house of Windsor. It means the progeny, the ongoing family and the family name. So people think while they're here on the planet, while they're wealthy, while they're doing well, they think that their name and their reputation is going to go on forever, and their house is just going to continue on, and their dwelling places are going to continue to all generations. In fact, they have called their lands after their own names and called them things like Trump Tower. As if that means that it's just going to continue on forever. The family name is going to go on and on. But if you think about the history of the world, there have been a whole lot of very rich, powerful, famous people who died who you can't even name anymore. We know they existed. We know there were plenty of societies before ours. We know there were plenty of governments and plenty of rich people. And yet they're gone now, and their family name is gone, and their reputation is gone. And that's the same thing that's going to happen with the rich and powerful that are on the planet right now at this moment. 
who think that their legacy, that their name is going to go on and on, that their dwelling is going to be to all generations, and that's why they go around sticking their name on everything. Ozymandias. On the what? Ozymandias. The poem about... Oh. There's a piece of stone in the desert on the great Ozymandias, and there's nothing left of his civilization. Who knows who he was? No one knows who he was. And, uh, but he thought he was great. He thought he had a statue, at least. Yeah. And so it is a fact, as Steve just proved, that even though they might call their lands and call their statues and their dwellings after themselves, they die and they go away, even though their inner thought is that their house is going to dwell forever. Look at verse 12. But man, in all his pomp, will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. So David has just equated the rich and powerful, the most significant of men, with nothing more than brute beasts. The same way that dogs that get hit by cars or possums lay in the middle of a road and get eaten up by vultures and worms, that's the same way the most rich and powerful humans ultimately are going to decay and be forgotten. So that really levels the field. And David is saying, keep that perspective. Understand and don't be afraid of people just because at the moment they seem powerful. Like brute beasts, they perish. And this is the way, that thinking that they're going to continue on, that is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve of their words. Think about that. There are people after the rich people who are just going to try to keep that legacy going. It's not like Microsoft is going to fold when Bill Gates dies. There are people who are going to continue and try to keep that legacy alive. But ultimately, they're going to go the way of history. And ultimately, their body, their physical body, is going to go to the grave and decay just like every other beast. That's the next part of this psalm. As sheep... They are appointed for Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead, the netherworld, the grave. And he's going to create the sheep-shepherd analogy here. And he says that death will be their shepherd. Death is the one that leads them and leads them into Sheol. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, and death will be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. What a great phrase. Among many of my preacher friends, they talk about the great getting up morning. And I like that phraseology, that idea of someday all of the dead are going to rise up out of their graves on that great getting up morning. Well, that's biblical type language here. David says that the upright are ultimately going to rule over the high and mighty and the powerful who might have oppressed them during this lifetime, but ultimately, in the judgment to come, the righteous are the ones that are going to shine. And the ones who had their riches and their power and their wealth and yet lived in their own sinfulness and depravity, they are going to be rightly judged, and the righteous will rule over them in the morning. But their form... Their body, their flesh, shall be for the grave to consume. 
It will be there for Sheol to eat up. So they will have no habitation. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but this is a great theological concept. The demons who possess people in the New Testament, the reason that they are looking for bodies to inhabit is because they don't have corporeal bodies. And that seems to be the indication here. Their bodies are going to be destroyed in Sheol, destroyed in the grave, and therefore they're not going to have that covering that Paul talks about where we are not going to go through eternity naked, but we will be covered with our new body. But they, in the judgment of God, are going to end up with no habitation. But, on the other hand, verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Think about that. Okay, so the contrast is huge. The contrast is between the rich and the powerful and the mighty of this world and how they try to oppress people, keeping people in fear. Seems like a good time to talk about that, just post-COVID. So much of our society was controlled by fear the last few years. And they do that in order to keep us under their hand and to keep us fearing them, worrying about them doing obeisance to them. And so the question of this psalm is, why are we afraid of them? Because ultimately, they're going to die, they're going to decay, they're going to be judged, and they're going to have no permanent habitation. But we who are in God, God is going to redeem our soul from the power, from the authority of the grave, of the underworld, and that he God himself will receive us. So think about that. That means that whatever happens in this lifetime to you is just all training for eternity. Whatever you have to endure here and now, it's no worse than what Jesus had to endure while he was on the planet. And you're told to pick up your cross daily and to endure the hardships of this life, knowing full well that that great getting up morning is coming. It's on the horizon. That day is coming, and it's going to be far, far better than the things we endure here and now. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So what's the conclusion? Verse 16. Do not be afraid When a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he carries nothing with him. He takes nothing away. His glory, all the pomp of this life, everything he's accumulated in this life, his glory will not descend after him. And I like the specificity of the direction he's headed. He's descending doesn't say his glory will not ascend after him. Instead, he's going down into the grave. And whatever he had in this lifetime doesn't go with him. When he stands before God at the judgment, he has absolutely no power, no authority, no money with which he can buy his own life or anybody else's life. And he dies like the beasts. So do not be afraid. Men are going to become rich. The glory of certain people's houses is going to be increased. 
But that shouldn't ultimately worry us because when those people die, they carry nothing with them and their glory does not descend after them. And though while he lives, he congratulates himself. Well done, me. Breaks his arm, patting himself on the back. Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Look at all the things I've named after myself. Everybody on the planet knows me. I am so famous. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And even though men praise you when you do well for yourself, boy, isn't that true. Even Billie Holiday admitted that. When you got money, you got lots of friends all crowding around your door. When the money's gone and all your spending ends, they don't come around anymore. I mean, it's just a truism of life. When you're doing great, when you're making money, when you're rich and powerful, boy, people can't wait to congratulate you and be part of it and be sycophants around you and tell you how wonderful you are. So while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, nevertheless, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. The same way that all of his predecessors died, he is going to die too. And they shall never see the light. They got all their glory. They got all their pomp. They got all their fame. They got all of that in this lifetime. But in the life to come, they're going to be gathered to a place of the grave where they ultimately are judged by God. And David's conclusion is they're never going to see the light because a man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the brute beasts that perish. And that's the point of the whole riddle. That's the point of the whole psalm is that man, even though he can accumulate all this wealth and all this pomp to himself, in the end, he goes to the dirt just like everybody else. In the end, he becomes worm food and dust just like everybody else. And for all of his pomp, if he doesn't have any wisdom, if he doesn't have any understanding, then all of that wealth can't help him, which is why earlier in the psalm he said, You can't redeem yourself. You can't redeem anybody else. There's not enough money available to pay a ransom to God to sustain anybody's life. So if you don't have understanding, if you don't have wisdom, and you accumulate everything this world has to offer you, ultimately that adds up to goose egg, zero, nada, nothing of importance. You're not going to see the light. And eternally, God is going to set you in judgment. So why are we, we who are of God, why are we afraid of them? We know their ultimate end. That's the point of that psalm. Psalm 50. For the first time, we're going to see a psalm of Asaph. Asaph writes a few more psalms that we'll get into later. But this is one of the first ones that demonstrably is not of David. If you would, uh, Tom, look up 1 Chronicles 15, 17. If you would, Steve, look up 2 Chronicles 29, 30. And we're going to learn a little bit about this Asaph character. But he is working in the temple and he is in charge of the music in the temple. 
That means that he has received a bunch of the psalms that David has written and apparently decided at some point, well, I can do that, and sat down and wrote some psalms of his own. What did you ask? That reference again, please. 2 Chronicles 29.30. And 1 Chronicles 15.17. <laughs> All right, Tom, you ready? 1 Chronicles 15, 17, this is just, actually read 16 and 17, and this will give us some idea who Asaph is. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments. So these are particular people of the Levites who are serving in the temple, and their assignment is that they are going to be singers who sing loudly on musical instruments. I just wanted to point that out. And, yeah. and then it names the instruments on harps and lyres and cymbals, cymbals, to, <laughs> to raise the sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah. Berechiah. Lots of other people. And a bunch of other people. So, so we know that Asaph is assigned to be a singer in the temple, and he is instructed to use instruments to make loud, joyous noises. You walk into some churches, and they're a little afraid if it gets a little too rambunctious and the music gets a little too loud. I guess they would have been very put off if they walked into the temple and were like, turn it down. But David expected the music in the temple to be joyous and loud and cymbals and trumpets and harps and lyres. Okay, Steve, have you got 2 Chronicles 29.30? And by the way, the context talks about trumpets in this verse. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. So in that context, Asaph is referred to as a seer. That tells us a little bit more about who Asaph is and why he is qualified to contribute psalms here alongside David. But notice again the happiness, the joy, the worship, the music, the loud music, the cymbals, the trumpets, the singing loudly. David expected the temple to be full of joyous music. So this is a psalm of Asaph. Psalm 50, verse 1. It starts with three words. El Elohim Yahweh. It is translated as the Mighty One, that's El, God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. So he used several different names to basically say the sovereign one, the one who's in charge of everything, the almighty God, he has spoken. And when he spoke, he summoned the whole earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. That means as distant on the horizon as you can see in all directions, all the people of inhabited earth are being summoned by God. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. So may our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. 
and he summons the heavens above and the earth below to judge his people. So he's about to judge people, and his witnesses are heaven and earth. That's how big, how almighty, how sovereign and powerful he is. He summons the people, and he's using heaven and earth as the witnesses against his people to judge his people. Gather my saints, my godly ones, my separated ones. That's obviously a reference to the children of Israel at this point. Gather them to me, specifically those who have made a covenant with me through sacrifice. In other words, when God made the Mosaic covenant, it required blood. There was blood of the covenant, and that blood was sacrificial animals, oxen and rams and lambs and birds and sheep. And God expected this constant flow of blood and this constant sacrificial system before him. And as long as people kept that system of sacrifice, they remained in covenant with him. So he's speaking specifically to the people he has revealed himself to through his law. It's obviously Israel he's talking to when he says, my godly ones, gather them to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare the righteousness of God. That sounds a little bit like Romans 1, doesn't it? That the heavens itself declare the judgment of God. The heavens declare his righteousness For God, Elohim himself, is judge. Think about that. Okay, so what do we know so far? Here is Asaph saying that God is going to gather all his people who are part of his covenant, the covenant that he made with them at Sinai, and integral to that covenant is the constant sacrifice of animals, and that is the way that the covenant is continued through the blood of that covenant. Because now God is going to say, I know you keep killing the animals, but that's not sufficient. You seem to think that killing the animals is all I require of you. And yet he's going to, in the second half of this psalm, describe their sinfulness, describe their rebellion against him, and yet they're still sacrificing animals. And so he is going to draw a distinction and say it takes more than just the rote religion. It takes more than just doing the practices of my religion over and over. It takes more than just attempting to keep the covenant by coming in every once in a while and slaughtering an animal and thinking you're all good and then going out and living like rebels against me. He starts in verse 7 by saying, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. And of course, he's got heaven and earth as his witnesses. And I will testify against you. I am Elohim, your Elohim. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. That's very interesting. That word reprove is judge. I don't judge against you based on your sacrifices. In other words, you've been good about bringing the sacrifices. I require the sacrifices, and you keep bringing the sacrifices. So I'm not saying don't do that. You should do that, and you've continued to do that. 
So I'm not reproving you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Now God's going to say, is that really all I require of you? He's now going to actually get sarcastic on them and say, I don't need your animals. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'm sufficient within myself. You keep bringing me these sacrifices and these burnt offerings, and you think that by keeping that part of the covenant, you are staying in relation with me. But I have this against you. Verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Those are explicitly the sacrifices that God required of them. The law says to bring young bulls and goats to sacrifice to God. And he says, and you keep doing it. And you should do it. And you keep burning sacrifices. And you should. But I won't take them from you. Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? So after pointing out to them that they're only giving him what is already his, and him saying, that does not enrich me. You seem to think that by bringing me these sacrifices that you are somehow improving me or satisfying me. The fact is, it's all mine to begin with. I created it all. I deserve it all. And if I wanted it, I'd go get it. But I'm not hungry, and then you bring me food, and then I eat. If I was hungry, I wouldn't bother to tell you. Because everything in the world is mine. Everything it contains is mine. All the bulls, all the goats, all the sheep, all the birds, everything that crawls in the field, everything is mine. So I don't need your young bulls. I don't require your young goats that you bring me. So do this, verse 14. Here is the sacrifice they should have been bringing. They shouldn't have stopped bringing the blood sacrifices. They shouldn't have stopped the burnt (coughs) offerings. But the thing that they were not bringing him that was obviously missing Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's a completely different thing. That doesn't require an animal. That's why God said, if it was just about animals, I don't care. I own all the animals. But instead, bring to me a sacrifice that rises up out of your heart where you recognize that the animals that you use to sacrifice to me the animals that you utilize to continue your covenant with me, the animals that you eat, the food that you eat, the grain that you get out of the field, because everything is mine, you should be constantly thanking me for the fact that I am giving you provision over and over and over again and even giving you the provision necessary to come and worship me 
I have provided all of that for you, and you have become so standardized in your rote religion that you're just bringing them to me without giving any thought to them. The purpose of them was ultimately for you to recognize who I am and who you are and how you need me and how you need me to redeem you and to buy you and to bring you to myself. And you think that you're keeping the covenant just by doing the stuff. Should we elucidate on that a little bit? Because so much of modern religion is just do the stuff. Just show up weekly, and as long as you go to mass once a week, you're good. Just do the stuff. If you think you want to go to heaven, we'll give you a list of things to do. You just do the stuff, and you'll be fine. You don't need to change your heart. don't need to change your attitude toward God. Just do the stuff. Religion in the world has always been chock full of stuff for you to do. And so here is God saying, yes, I gave you the stuff to do, but there was a point behind it. And you missed the point. And the point is thanksgiving. The point is recognizing that I have provided all these things and that they all belong to me and that I allow you to have them and to utilize them in order to keep covenant with me. I've been nothing but good and gracious to you. Get on your face and thank me. And interestingly, he uses the exact same word that he uses for sacrificing animals and says, instead, give me the sacrifice of thanksgiving. You can have Lots of cattle. Oh, here, we'll put it in modern terms. You can have lots of money. And just because you give God a little bit of your money, that doesn't take anything from you. Let's say you're making $1,000 a week. And then let's say each week you give God a buck. Did that change your life at all? Did that hurt you in any way? No, you didn't feel that. Well, that's kind of what he's getting at here. Yeah, you might have brought me an animal. Yeah, you might have shed its blood or burned it. But it doesn't seem to be a real sacrifice to you. Instead, I'm requiring of you that you give me something that costs you something. That's what the word sacrifice means. If you're going to sacrifice to God, then it has to cost you something. And the thing he is requiring from his people isn't even tangible. It's not even physical. It's I require of you that you recognize who I am and you thank me. And that is just against our nature. That's against our character. We're way too egocentric to do that. We're too self-sufficient. We're way too sure of ourselves. We like ourselves way too much. And so we think, well, if I just do the stuff... God's happy. But God says, your heart has to be in the right place. Your attitude has to be in the right place. It's ultimately not about the money. It's ultimately not about the animals. It's ultimately not about the stuff you're doing. It's not about the religious practices. It's not about that. It's about me. It's about recognizing who I am, what I have done for you, and getting down in front of me and thanking me and recognizing that everything you have, everything you do, comes from me. And he calls that genuine sacrifice. That's the way that you ought to do it. It is so much more than just the rote practices of religion. It is the recognition of who God is 
and then pouring out your soul, your thanksgiving to him. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. If you make promises, if you say you're going to bring a sacrifice, if you say you're going to help somebody, actually do it. In other words, be true to your word. If you say you're going to do it, then do it. And if you make promises to God, then keep your vows to God because that is a recognition of who God is in your life. And if you do that, look at verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. If God showed up right now, walked through the front door, and said, would you like to honor me? We'd all say, well, yes. Yes, I, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I would prefer to honor you, yes. He just told you right here how to do it. And it's not in the stuff. It's not in the religious practices. It's in the recognition of who he is and then offering him the sacrifice of thanksgiving and being true to your word where God is concerned recognizing him as a priority in your life. And then when you call upon him in your day of trouble, which is going to happen, the day of trouble is coming, but you're going to call on him and he's going to rescue you. I know everybody in this room right now, and I know we have all had days of trouble. Can I get a witness? We've all had difficult days. And you know what? You're still here. And you still got through those days of trouble. And why is that? Because God took you through those times of trouble. He's been faithful to you. Say thank you. Thank you. You got up and you knew your own name and you had clothes to wear and food to eat. Say thank you. It's so much more than just I go to church and I do the religious stuff. It's on a day-to-day, regular, hourly basis, recognizing who God is, what he has done for you in your life, how he has called you, how he has redeemed you, how he is continually providing for you and blessing you on and on again. Sacrifice to him in thanksgiving. Take the time to recognize who he is. Take the time to worship, to praise him. Be loyal to him. Be consistent with him. If you make promises, be good to your word. And then you call upon him in the day of trouble, and he rescues you, and you know that's true because he's done it for you time and time again. Honor him with your life. Honor him with your choices and your decisions. Honor him by thanking him. Now, that first half of the psalm, has to do with your relationship to God. The second half of this psalm has to do with your relationship to people, which is really interesting because Jesus himself said that you will fear and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said that's the great commandment in the law. And then he said the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, in this is the whole of the law and the prophets. Love God, love neighbor. Your relationship with God, your relationship to your neighbors. This psalm is divided up exactly that way. The first half of the psalm, everything we've read so far, is your relationship to God. But then your relationship to God will flow out into your relationship with other people. And so while God is busy judging people here for their lack of thanksgiving, for their lack of appropriate sacrifice to him, 
He then says, starting in verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Wow, that's cutting. He's saying, you're coming in here with your animals. You're coming to the temple. You're doing the rote religious stuff. You're doing all of that, and yet you live a wicked life. So the stuff, the religious stuff, doesn't make up for the fact of who you are and what you are like in your heart. You don't sacrifice to me. You don't give me appropriate worship and thanksgiving. Instead, you are a wicked person, and because you're wicked, God says, you don't even have the right to talk about my statutes. Don't walk around talking about my covenant. And you don't have the right to take my covenant in your mouth. How dare you speak about me as if you know anything about me? Your actions make evident that you don't know anything about me. And basically, how dare you? You can't talk about me. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, you hate correction, and you cast my words behind you. My words discipline you, my words correct you, my words steer you appropriately, and you don't do them. So then it is obvious that you are not part of my covenant people, even though you show up here regularly in the temple and you give stuff and you sacrifice animals, and you do the religious practices. And everybody on the outside looking in would say, oh, look at that guy go. He must really be godly. And God, who knows the heart, calls heaven and earth against the wicked and says, you can't even talk about me. How dare you have my words in your mouth? You hate my discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you associate with adulterers. And you let your mouth loose in evil. And your tongue is always lying. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. And you slander your own mother's son. You're talking about your flesh and blood brothers. You're talking about those of your own kindred. You're talking about those of your own kind. You sit and you speak against your own brethren. So, what have they done wrong so far? Well, their relationship with God is wrong, and as a consequence, their relationship with people is wrong. If you fear and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, then you will treat your brother as yourself. So your relationship with God is reflected in the way that you treat people. And if your relationship with God is wrong, your relationship with people is always inevitably going to be wrong. Your relationship with God is set right, and you have a sacrificial spirit toward God, then you're going to have a loving, sacrificial, forgiving, gracious spirit toward other people. But as God is sitting in judgment with these who don't understand his covenant, who can't even speak his words, He just lists all the things that they have done that make them evil and sinful and make them slanderous. Verse 21, these things you have done, and I kept silence. And you thought I was just like you. Here's God saying, you went about and did these things, and because I didn't judge you instantly for them, you thought you were getting away with them, 
And then you thought, I didn't care. Just because you can fool other people, you thought you were fooling me. You think that I'm altogether like you are. This is the same God who in Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. It's God repeatedly saying, I'm not like you. You're not like me. I'm very different than you. And you made the critical error of thinking that I'm like you. And I'm not like you. You do these evil things, and I kept silence, and you thought that I was just like you. But I will judge you. I will reprove you. And I'm going to state the case that I have against you in order before your eyes. Would you really want God to stand you up and say, okay, let's take a close look at your life. And let's just go chapter by verse through your life. Let's put it up on the big screen. Let's review every thought, every intention of your heart. Let's have a good look at you. Would you want to do that? I'll pass. I'll pass. And yet here is God saying, I'll reprove you and I'll state the case in order before your eyes so that you know how guilty you are before me because I'm nothing like you. And you thought you could fool me? By just doing the religious stuff and mistreating people? Verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you to pieces and there will be none who can deliver you. Okay, that's God demonstrating how much he is not like us. <laughs> he is demonstrating that he can utterly destroy and judge you eternally and cast you into outer darkness. So consider this. Think about this. Consider the judgment of God and consider your own ways and consider whether you're just doing religion or whether your heart is actually in it. Consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there is none to deliver he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. There's the answer to how you honor God. It's more than just doing the religious practices. It's recognizing who God is and sacrificially thanking him. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright to the one who walks out his life appropriately, who makes a profession of me, sacrifices to me, and then lives his life in a way that is appropriate to me, to him I shall show the salvation of Elohim. That's the one who's going to end up being saved. The one who not only says he believes, the one who actually demonstrates it in his life and demonstrates it in the way he sacrifices to God, and demonstrates it in the way that he fears and reverences God, and demonstrates it in the way that he treats his brethren, 
and demonstrates it in the way that he recognizes that God is the source of absolutely everything on the planet, everything that you have, even the sacrifices that you bring to God, he gave you in the first place because he is the one who is providing everything necessary for your complete, full salvation and redemption. You don't even get credit for the stuff you bring to God. So therefore, thank him. Recognize what he has done for you. And then live it out. And those are the ones who God is going to show salvation. Good, instructive psalm. That's a great psalm. Now, if you'll give me five more minutes, I'd like to talk a little eschatology. I mentioned earlier that this particular psalm, there's one verse in it that is cited almost universally by amillennial and postmillennial folk. Anybody who says that the thousand years of Revelation 20 is not to be taken literally, the common way that they will make their argument is to try to find texts in the Old Testament where the word thousand is used in a nonspecific sense. And because they argue that it's nonspecific, they then think that they can allegorize it, and therefore, thousand in Revelation 20 doesn't mean actual mathematic 1,000. It means a large expanse of time. And almost inevitably, they will go to Psalm 50, verse 10, that says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And the argument typically goes like this. Well, what about the cattle on the thousand and first hill? Are those not his? In other words, the cattle on a thousand hills means all the cattle on all the hills. So therefore, not specifically a thousand. It means large number, not specifically a thousand. Hear the argument? Mm -hmm. And I hear it so commonly on the internet, people who will make that exact argument. The cattle on a thousand hills, what about the thousand and first hill? Okay, so two responses. Number one, if I was going to make that argument, I wouldn't make it from this verse because it demonstrates that you don't know a lot about the Hebrew language that the verse was drawn from. The word that is translated thousand here is LF. Now you know that there are no vowels in the Hebrew language. And there is also a Hebrew word that uses those same letters that is pronounced eluf. And eluf means oxen. In which case, this verse would be translated, the cattle on the hills of oxen are mine. And some translations render it that way. And really, contextually, because this whole psalm, as you just heard, is about sacrifices, it makes sense. The cattle, the oxen are all mine. The hills of oxen and the cattle on them are mine. So I don't know that I would go running to that verse to try to demonstrate that thousand doesn't always accurately mean a thousand because the verse itself is not exactly precisely translated as a thousand. 
it's LF or it's aloof. But more importantly, if you look at the context, even the argument, what about the cattle on the thousand and first hill? That argument doesn't work because the rest of the context tells you what God means by it. Starting at verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field, it's all mine. So it's clear what God is saying. It's obvious what God is saying. He is not limiting himself to a thousand. He is saying, he is demonstrating that absolutely every animal belongs to him. Therefore, the sacrifices that are being brought to him are his in the first place, which is why he can then go on and say, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and everything it contains is mine. And so even that thousand and first argument makes no sense. I've shown you Sunday mornings over and over again, that a thousand means a thousand. And by the way, if that's the standard that we're going to go with, gee, in this verse right here, thousand is used in a nonspecific way, therefore it's always nonspecific. Well, then remember in the book of Numbers, where a thousand was specifically 500 times two. So that would be a demonstration of some place in the Old Testament where thousand is used mathematically. So then it should be used mathematically in Revelation. See how the argument goes? So... I just thought since we were passing by that particular verse and that particular psalm and how often it is used on the internet to try to undermine Revelation 20 and the literal reading of it, I just thought that I would take the time to undo that for you. Just a little bonus. Now you can go home. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.